You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge rival laws. Uh, in this place and um, I'd like to welcome you all to this Illa Skills Circle where we have the special guests of uh, Dr Amanda Gilbertson and Dr Devalina Dutta. Our um, co-host is Ben Golder. Ben is the convener of the University of New South Wales Critique Network. I always get the name wrong um, but one of the good things about Zoom, the Zoomification of our skills circle has been the ability to join forces with Ben and um, the UNSW crew. So some of you are new to the format of the skills circle. So let me just explain that the skills circle is not meant to be experts transferring knowledge and taking questions. It's really about people from different um, with different levels of experience and different levels of jadedness in relation to the conduct of research, sharing ideas and enthusiasms and problems in a way that really enables people to think out loud rather than transfer knowledge. So in the spirit of that, we have invited a couple of special guests or featured knitters or featured uh, conversationalists to launch the conversation. And so I'm very delighted to be joined by Dr. Devalina Dutta, who was a PhD student at Melbourne Law School under the supervision of Anne Genovese and Sean McVeigh, um, and Dr. Amanda Gilbertson, who's an anthropologist at the University of Melbourne, who specialises in class, gender and education in India, I think. And Devalina uh, works on feminist jurisprudence and tells me that her most recent work is about laughter, humour, fun and its relationship to justice. So Devalina has asked me to tell you that um, her uh, internet is a bit unstable, so she's going to sacrifice video for the qual for the sake of audio. So if she uh, turns into um, a picture of a woman with a flower behind her ear, you'll continue. You'll be able to continue to hear her talking. And I just realised I didn't introduce myself. My name's Sandhya Bahija, and I'm the director of Illa, and very happy to convene this conversation. So I'm going to meet myself now and turn over to Devalina and Amanda in the first instance to start our conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Sandhya. So, uh, Amanda, you okay with if I go first? I just kind of, okay, thank you. So, uh, hello, everyone. And uh, first of all, thank you, Sandhya and Ben, for inviting me today, and uh, Amanda for joining the conversation, actually. And I also want to congratulate Ila for completing 15 years. And then Sandhya said that I, this is where I did my PhD. And, you know, I'll always cherish its intellectual community. It's just been magic for me. So, um, so yeah, okay. So now coming to our topic for today, what I'm actually going to do is just kind of tell you and share, tell you a little bit about my own experiences with fieldwork. Okay. So actually, long before I joined the academia, I engaged in fieldwork through my human rights advocacy work around sexual rights and anti-trafficking laws and policies. Okay. And I saw fieldwork then 
as a feminist research method, primarily for representing the truth about marginalized lives. Now, in many ways, uh, my PhD research was really a continuation of my activism, okay? But uh, during this time, as I got more and more introduced to scholarship in the law and humanities, and uh, particularly through the works of um, Gayatri Spivak, Bipesh Chakravarti, and my supervisors, and Genovese and Sean McPhee, I kind of came to see uh, feminist uh, intellectual practices in law, not so much as an act of truth-telling, but as the performance of an ethic of reciprocity and collaboration, okay? And so fieldwork then became a means of actualizing this relational ethic into a practice for feminist legal knowledge production, okay? Okay, let me try and explain that. So uh, my PhD is in the area of feminist jurisprudence, okay? And I uh, wrote a history of how, you know, disparate groups of people and as diverse as non-lawyer sex worker collectives and uh, established legal academics have kind of jointly produced a field of feminist jurisprudence in India, okay? So I selected a set of literature authored by the two groups, which included journal articles, books, pamphlets, posters, a manifesto, and so on. And by reading and interpreting the literature, I was going to tell a story about the formation of the field in India. Now, the activist move here was to show that it wasn't only the prerogative of lawyers and academics to have written and shaped feminist legal thought in India. Okay, And the sex workers movement, which is a collective of women and non-gender binary people, often without any formal training in law or any formal education for that matter, are a bearer of legal wisdom and an equal contributor to the feat. Okay, Now, here was the challenge. Now, if I was going to argue that the legal wisdom of sex workers and legal academics equally and jointly contributed to the productions of the field, I would have to accord equal value to the thoughts and practices that were embedded in their texts, right? But within academic research, you know, a book by Upendra Bakshi or Ratna Kapoor and uh, let's say a pamphlet written by, you know, quote unquote, uneducated sex worker groups would not equally translate as sources of law and legal knowledge, right? So there was no readily available method that I could use to alter this hierarchical relationship between the works that I was reading. Okay, so, so I figured that I kind of needed a method of reading and interpreting the text by which the authors could be drawn into a relationship first with me as my interlocutors in the research. And then that would work to position them and their work as equal contributors within the field that I was writing about. Okay? But as you can tell, this is really easier said than done. Right? And, and so now I had to also work out a scholarly move by which fieldwork kind of became central to the materialization of my argument, in fact. Okay? So what I did was I kind of conceptualized the fieldwork in my research as what is known as ADDA, which is uh, basically a localized everyday practice of reciprocal conversations in Bengal, uh, which is where I am from okay, in India. Now, by theorizing fieldwork as an ADDA, I kind of continued the interviews in a way that I, I kind of conducted the interview, sorry, in a way that I actually interpreted the text in and through my conversations with their authors, okay? So in fact, I interpreted the text along with their authors to accord a shared meaning to these, okay? And this is how, through a shared mode of interpretation and meaning making, both groups kind of became 
interlocutors in relation to me and in relation to each other as collaborators in the field of Indian feminist jurisprudence, that which I was writing about. Okay, So in short, uh, fieldwork for me is actually where the conceptual and the practical aspects of my research work find a meeting ground. Okay, and, and I just kind of wanted to share these preliminary thoughts and kind of and hope to come back to some of the crucial issues around access uh, to communities and the ethics application process, maybe later during the uh, discussion. And um, I'll, I'll kind of stop now and I'll kind of hand it over to um, Amanda to share her own experiences. Uh, thanks, Debelina. Uh, first of all, for inviting me to be part of this conversation and then for that wonderfully rich conceptual um, um, description of your approach to fieldwork. Um, that's a little bit of a hard act to follow and I feel like I want to blame being an anthropologist for that. Um, and why is that? I think that might be because um, as an anthropologist, um, uh, we almost take fieldwork for granted, you know, doing ethnography is is sort of part of, of the discipline. And for some people, it is the discipline. It's difficult to, to, to untangle the two, the ethnographic method and the discipline of anthropology. Um, and although anthropology has gotten better over the years at actually interrogating um, the power dynamics of fieldwork and treating it as a method that needs to be taught, um, in my own training as an anthropologist, um, I, I received very little methodological training and I was still, um, you know, I went to do my first field work um, in Hyderabad in southern India in 2009. Um, and at that point, had um, although there was a lot of scholarship around um, thinking about field work, um, I sort of went off with that kind of turn up and figure it out kind of approach to ethnography. But I'm going to just talk you through the practicalities of three different field work projects that I've done in urban India, um, the first being my PhD um, and the last being my most recent work um, as part of a DECRA, a, a Discovery Early Career Researcher Award um, in Lucknow. So my PhD research was based in Hyderabad, as I mentioned, um, and um, I uh, lived with um, local families. So I, my research was based in and around two schools. Um, and I kind of just turned up in Hyderabad, got a list of schools, went and found some schools that were willing to have someone hang about for a whole year, um, asked at the schools if anyone was looking for a paying guest, and then stayed um, with families for the duration of that year, different families for a few months at a time. Um, and so one of the things we might want to talk about um, uh, in the questions is kind of the different perspective that I had during that fieldwork um, uh, as a result of, of living um, with different families. Um, since that fieldwork, I, have, I haven't again lived with um, families who were a part of my fieldwork. Um, and so my postdoctoral project was based in Delhi um, and I was exploring um, the um, feminisms and politics of young people who were working to promote gender equality in the city. Um, I lived with friends um, in a kind of flashing situation that, um, and, um, and one of the distinctive features of that research uh, relative to the PhD research um, was that I worked very closely with local research assistants. Um, and so as part of the sort of ethnography and of the, um, uh, of the interviewing process was working um, alongside others. And so language is, a, is another key kind of consideration in my fieldwork. Although I've studied 
Telugu and then Hindi and then Urdu. Um, I speak none of those languages fluently um, and I don't think I can make any claims to speaking Telugu anymore at all. Um, and so um, I have been, you know, so translation, I've worked a lot with um, middle class urban people who speak excellent English, um, but I've also been in situations where I would have loved to have more Telugu in order to understand conversations that were going on around me um, and have also worked um, with uh, research assistants and translators in order to do research in Hindi. So another thing that I don't know if any of you are thinking through the practicalities of fieldwork around that question of language and collaboration um, with um, other researchers in that process. And then my third and final project um, that's involved extensive fieldwork is my current study of implementation of an education policy. It's part of India's Right to Education Act. And for that project, I spent time in the North Indian city of Lucknow, capital of Uttar Pradesh. Um, and again, that research was based in and around schools, talking to teachers, parents, um, and um, uh, various bureaucrats and, and NGO workers and so on involved in the implementation of this policy. Um, so for me, um, I didn't approach fieldwork originally with the kind of, um, I guess, conceptual framework that Debelina has described. And instead it's been an ongoing process of thinking through some of the ethical implications, um, particularly of being um, a non-Indian doing research in India has been one of um, the major kind of ethical um, considerations for me. What are the implications of that? in terms of access, it certainly gives me access to certain kinds of spaces that I wouldn't have otherwise. And how do I negotiate um, that unequal power relation? Does that have implications for who I do research, with whom I do research? Um, are there um, different ethical considerations around doing research with say, urban middle-class English speaking um, teachers at elite schools vis-a-vis um, -vis, um, uh, very low income families who are um, the beneficiaries of this Right to Education Act that I'm currently um, researching. Um, so that's one of been, been one of the key um, ethical considerations through the research. Um, like Debelina, this issue of collaboration as well and thinking about shared knowledge production has been um, a factor, although I don't think that I've quite, as Debelina described, come to that kind of uh, thinking of it as a process of of, of reading, and I think that's something I'd really like to talk to Devolino a bit more about as we open up for discussion. Um, but maybe as a way of, of opening up that discussion, I wonder if you could say a bit more, Devolino, about um, how your conceptual work, the conceptual framework that you just described, translated into your ethics application. Thanks. Thanks, Amanda. Um, yeah, that was uh, okay. So the ethics application process and um, although it was very useful, you know, for clarifying my own ideas. Um, and some of the things were quite smooth in, in the sense that, you know, in the, in the application process, because I, I was myself from India, I've been an activist, so I'd worked with these. Uh, okay, so first to kind of spell out who the people that I were, I was going to interview and conduct my research with. Okay, so the academics that I was kind of studying, the works that I was studying were um, of uh, Upendra Bakshi 
and Ratna Kapoor. And the sex worker groups were these two sex worker collectives based in India. One is in um, Kolkata called DMSC and the other is in um, Sangli Maharashtra called VAM. Now, the thing is, um, so, so, yeah, so when I kind of made my application, um, uh, especially to do the interviews with the sex workers, um, it, it was okay because it wasn't so much of an issue because I'd, I had kind of worked with these two groups for a very long time. So access was not really an issue for me. Um, I spoke Hindi, I spoke Bangla, which is what DMSC spoke. I spoke Hindi, because, which was one of the languages with the BAMP uh, sex worker spoke, but I didn't know Marathi, but I kind of knew a little bit of Marathi. Uh, so there were kind of the interviews were conducted in um, with the sex workers in these two uh, different languages, so Hindi, Bangla, and also a little bit of Marathi. I knew, so there wasn't an issue with that. I didn't require a translator. I knew the people. Uh, all of that was uh, kind of easy, okay? But then um, the ethics approval process also became kind of proved to be quite long and daunting at times, okay? And I'll kind of uh, give you an example. So as I said, I had to do two separate uh, ethics applications, okay? Uh, for the university, one for the academics and one for the sex workers. And these are two very different uh, processes, okay? Uh, so the one with sex workers had many different steps. The, the one with uh, for uh, interviewing academics were kind of very easy. So I sent an application, I got an approval in just a week, okay? Whereas the for the one with the sex workers took almost a year, okay? Now, and... Um, and then there were also independent ethic committees at the two sex worker collectives from where I had to also seek ethics approval. So that, that didn't take time, but that was part of the process. Now, the university application, you know, as I said, the one for interviewing the academics is very smooth, but and the ethics application for interviewing sex workers is the exact opposite, okay? Now, according to the kind of the research or academic research convention, sex workers, and especially those who are in, in a Southern location are a, high-risk group, right, as you, as many of you may know. So, but the women that I was going to interview were actually part of an organized movement, right, that had mobilized in the early, since the early 1990s, actually, kind of they regularly engage with the state and the judiciary to claim, uh, you know, the legal right to do sex work. Okay, and an important aspect of their kind of legal activism is, is the uh, disclosure of their identities in public, okay? So to claim their identities as sex workers and kind of announce it whenever they're in conversation with outsiders, uh, in any public meetings, with whoever they speak, right? So they kind of speak to you as sex workers. Now, the ethics approval process actually required me to state that I was going to keep their identities confidential, okay? As, as all, many of you know, that there's this confidentiality clause. So not only kind of did this confidentiality clause not make sense for my research, you know, it was in fact the unethical thing to do. So you see, there was kind of a kind of mismatch, kind of a non-alignment there with the requirements of the formal ethics process and the kind of ethical considerations that I was working with in, in my um, research. So, um, you know, because if I was going to account for the sex workers in my thesis as producers of their own jurisprudence, you know, which is it's pretty much what my argument was. I had to acknowledge how they wanted to account for their own subject positions within the law, right? And in the public. So for me, it, 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 was, it was not just about following procedures. It was something deeper. It had an impact on my argument. It had an impact on the way in which I conceptualized my, my research, right? So 
And I tried to explain this to the committee, but it required a lot of back and forth until I guess everybody got tired. And so the committee finally agreed to let me retain the provision, you know, only on paper. And, and not have to use it. But, but at the time, you know, the process of negotiation was quite hard and, and frustrating, to be honest. But, um, but see, here again, it's because it's actually the a conceptual and practical issues were tied together. And it's the, the way in which that uh, happened in my thesis was, you know, was the reason why I was kind of encountering these issues and not so much the issues that most other people encounter with, as you said, with translation, language, uh, you know, um, access, which is often a very big issue, right? But for me, those were not issues at all, at all. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, so I actually want to return that question to you, Amanda. So was, you know, the kind of, as you said, you know, you asked me this question, which is mm -hmm. about how, whether there was uh, an alignment between the concerns of the, you know, the ethics process and the ethics committee and the ethical concerns that you were working with in your research. So was, were they aligned or was there a clash? How did that thanks. go for you? Yeah, thanks, Deblina. I, I think, yeah, as with you, there was a mismatch, but perhaps less so with the conceptual framework and the concerns of the ethics committee and maybe more with what um, sort of what I perceive to be the real ethical dilemmas of the project um, and um, and and those of the ethics committee. So I guess similar to you, um, one of the concerns of an ethics committee in relation to one of my projects was around um, the risk um, of the, the risk that um, gender justice workers in Delhi would be in um, in speaking to me about their gender justice work because you know because of patriarchy in India that they were at risk simply by sort of outing themselves as people working for gender equality which I mean that you know I'm just talking to people protesting on the streets and you know like the, it was very difficult to I found it quite difficult to respond to that in terms of um, you know these are people very openly and publicly um, campaigning for gender justice. It's not a, a risk. Um, whereas I guess my own ethical concerns were more around, for me, I think there's a real dilemma. Um, well, first around the, the sort of neocolonial power dynamics of my um, representation um, of the context in which I work, um, but also um, around fieldwork more generally, where there's that long-term building up of relationships, um, which can be relationships of re reciprocity but I think for me, I've also had real concerns over time where I feel like people um, uh, are very willing to participate in research because they know me well and feel a sense of obligation towards me. So um, knowing where that balance is in terms of people's, um, to what extent building rapport, building long-term relationships um, puts people under um, obligation to continue to participate in research when otherwise they might not choose to. So that's been... Um, one of the kind of ethical dilemmas that I grapple with that isn't included in an ethics application, I guess. Um, but maybe it's time to, yeah, open up. Uh, yeah, can I jump in yeah. there? Um, so I'm sure that there are people also in the, in the circle, as it were, who um, have things they can share. And I can see some names of people who uh, I'm sure have interesting observations. But I suppose one of the things that occurs to me while I'm listening is, first of all, the way in which the interrelatedness of the practical, the ethical and the conceptual is an unbreakable circle. 
And so when I was thinking about a skills circle on field work, I'm a really practical person and I always think of the how do, how should one do things kind of question. And I'm interested, Amanda, to hear you say you also felt that you didn't have that much training in how to do field work because I always think it must be a difficulty in the legal academy that we um, have PhD students, for example, who want to do field work and generally, I mean, personally, I'm not trained in that. So I don't know how to support students in the practical part. So I, I guess that we have ways of thinking with students and fellow researchers about the ethical parts. Mm-hmm. But I suppose the question of um, actually doing it. So when you study a discipline like anthropology, do you have classes on doing field work where you sit down and you say, how do you conduct an interview? How do you decide who to put in your list of interviewees? So the Bellina story is interesting because it it's such it shows how organic that process can be and how, how closely connected to a project. But is I mean, is there a holy grail that lawyers just don't know how to access about how to do field work properly in different kinds of ways? Um, yes and no. So things have changed enormously in anthropology, you know, even in the last sort of decade or so in terms of the approach to teaching field work in, you know, in a really, um, structured way. Um, but I think just given the history of the discipline that we talked about, sort of taught about Malinowski who sort of turned up and, you know, just turned up and hung out and sort of invented this method. And I think that there continues to be this valorization of, of just turning up, hanging out, figuring it out as you go along and ideally suffering significantly, you know, in the process. Um, and there's actually been some really interesting um, writing recently um, by um, people doing research um, with um, chronic health conditions or disabilities, talking about how that valorization of suffering during field work makes it really difficult for field work to be um, something that all people can do. Um, but um, so, yeah, I think I was sort of by virtue of the universities I'd been to and sort of the timing, a little bit still catching the tail end of that, like you should just turn up and hang out and figure it out. Yeah. Having said yeah. that, I did. Um, I mean, at the University of Melbourne now, you can study ethnic, you know, ethnography as part of your mm-hmm. undergraduate degree. Um, when you do your honours in anthropology, you do a research project and get lots of research training as part of that. And I had a, a, a similar experience during my honours of, of doing a project as part of my honours. Um, and I did my PhD at Oxford and we did have some methods seminars that we had to sort of attend. There was something on quantitative methods, but I don't remember having any um, training to the extent that it is part of it now. Um, but I think there's an advantage to, in some ways to approaching ethnography from outside anthropology in that, you know, it is, um, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that kind of conceptual um, framework that Deblina described is such a beautiful um, sort of process of thinking through this connection between method and theory um, that, um, you know, yeah, I just, um, yeah. I, I also think Debelina needs very, to take credit for that, yeah. but I just no, also, no, yeah. I mean, I also yeah. think that Debelina's um, articulation of that is it shows how deeply thoughtful about mm. each of the pieces one has to be to produce something um, really holds water 
mm. practically and conceptually and ethically. Mm. Ashraf has uh, Ashraf's hand up. I don't know who uh, it is exactly, but Ashraf, do you want to um, make a comment or ask a question? Hello, there you are. Hi. Now I know who you are. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, uh, I have a comment or a question to think double enough. Uh, I really like the idea of Adda. Uh, I'm, I'm also familiar with that word Adda because I'm also a Bengali. And interestingly, I also use the same word Adda in my uh, method PhD method chapter. So it's really interesting. But I wonder how, uh, so like I, I did research on Rohingya refugees in, in refugee camps. So I mentioned that like talking so I, I found this idea of Adda in a different way. My intention was not to do Adda or like a group kind of interview. My intention was to do individual interview. But in refugee camp setting, it's very difficult to find this space to do individual one-on-one -on -one interview. So in many cases, I was talking to one person and some of the people just joined in as if it's like an Adda that, you know, neighbors and people's walking nearby, they can just join in. There is no social barrier. But there is some kind of hierarchy, like age hierarchy or status hierarchy. What can you say? What you cannot say in an, in an Adda? But at the same time, I felt like, uh, you know, I, I'm not a refugee. So in the refugee camp setting, because they are in a disadvantaged position. So like there is a sense of hierarchy between the researcher and the uh, re research participant. I assume uh, the Bolinas work with sex workers might have similar kind of hierarchy uh, between uh, researcher and the, and the sex worker participants. So I wonder actually how you overcame that kind of um, the gap because to be an Adda, like a like an informal chat, if I, if I translate roughly, if Adda is informal chat, like it has to be like organic and even though there is hierarchy, so there has to be some some kind of pre-existing relationship, like to make it organic. You just just can't go and talk with a person. It, it can be a conversation, but it can't be an adda. Let's I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. It raises the question of both of the adda specifically and of the question of the hierarchy that's produced between the. Um, the interviewer or the researcher and the research subjects. Evelina, um, will you say something about Ashraf's uh, comment slash question and then I'll throw to Siddharth or Amanda may wish also to jump in. Sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ashraf. Actually, uh, you've raised some very important questions because these are things that I've also had to think about when I was conceptualizing my research, you know. So one thing, uh, there are two, two things here. One is about uh, participation in an Adda. And because we all kind of bring different kinds of hierarchies to the uh, to add the actual doing of it, right? When we kind of do the conversations. The other is about what is, how was I going to place Adda within my research? So I wasn't only looking at Adda as something that I, as a template, you know, something that I could lift and just kind of apply and then go and, do it okay it had to be adapted 
okay because of specifically those things that you mentioned which is that you know generally we think of adda as this free flowing organic conversation where it's it's a kind of conversation of equals okay but the way that i was looking at adda is that adda you know if and you would know in bengali is it's actually um if you had to kind of look at what it really means it has two meanings okay one is a verb which is kind of as an activity a conversation a reciprocal conversations if you like in some ways right it, but it is also a noun in the sense that it's kind of it means a meeting ground okay so for me when i was thinking of adda i was also looking at it as a meeting ground of diverse points of view that could come together and meet and and exist so there didn't have to be one interpretation of a thing to give you an example because i was using it as an interpretive technique right um and so so if i understood a text in a certain way another person uh, maybe the author of the text saw it in a certain way we were going to have a conversation about it and that and our different diverse ideas about that same thing could meet so those were the things that actually mattered to me in the way that i used adda uh, and adapted it uh, for my for my own research okay and the uh, so to to have that was the first point in the way that adda featured right in the way that i was doing my research the second was about the hierarchy look see of course there was um, hierarchy so adda is a kind of a uh, conversation that is carried out between multiple participants right of course the participants don't are don't always belong to the same backgrounds they are not the same quote unquote right but there is similarity in the sense of a shared ground so there's some common ground in terms of how people meet and have a conversation about an idea that excites them or that matter to them right so that that was the essence of adda for me and that is what then i kind of brought in to to the uh, to uh, the research that i was doing okay um uh, so that's that's i don't know if it answers the question but um it was the essence so then the next thing about the hierarchies and again uh of course there are there are hierarchies um in terms of our you know my standing my social standing and and that of sex workers but you see uh what kind of made I was sort of mediated that was the fact that I had a very very long relationship with the sex workers movement okay so and I was actually having these conversations with people that I knew some of them were my friends okay and I was writing a thesis that had to do with um learning about the knowledge that they produce okay so I wasn't going and asking them personal questions about uh you know how they were uh, uh you know sexually assaulted or let's say how um they were they faced domestic violence which is the kind of generally the kind of research that is carried on with sex workers often you know and that's that's a problem with the way in which the research world sees sex workers as subjects within the research so in that sense this was different i was interested in the knowledge that they were producing so and our questions had to do with that so we were meeting in some ways as equals because in that conversation i was there to kind of talk to them about the literature that they had put together that they had authored the ideas that were in it okay so in that sense it also kind of became a little different and uh, kind of not that it kind of did anything to the social hierarchies that were quite real the material hierarchies in that sense uh, but we were meet so as i said adda for me was the meeting ground so we met as in some ways not as social unequals but as people that were interested in law they were thinking about law and the way in which 
uh, law had a relationship with our lives. So I don't that's know so interesting. Yeah, I mean that's so interesting, Debelina, also because it's making it's provoking me to think about the nature of quote unquote research. Um, but let me pause my own uh, interest there just to pass to Siddharth. Amanda, do you want to say anything before Siddharth uh, asks or comments? Or no, I we... need to go straight to Siddharth's question. Okay, great. Um, thanks, Amanda and Devlina, for the presentation. It was, it was really interesting. And I, I actually, my question comes from um, somebody who's doing... I'm doing like uh, qualitative interviews as part of my research, but it's uh, my research is kind of doctrinal, but also drawing on on, on on some qualitative interviews in the area of hate speech, online hate speech regulation. But so what I was kind of interested in is, is uh, from both of you actually, is kind of, is there a distinction to be made about uh, dealing with legal issues or, or is there some sort of a distinction between legal ethnography and uh, ethnography in the humanities more generally. Is there something specific when you're dealing with, um, say, in your case, the right to education, education law, or the case? I don't know whether you looked at uh, some of the legislative stuff there, but in in um, in Deblina's case, may, maybe like the like the the stuff that the academics were writing, like the doctrine. So, is there a way? In which, in which uh, the law kind of, when you think about law, but in relation to, in relation to how people think about it. So, is there something specific going on there that might be different from ethnography more generally? That was my. Tiblina, would you like to have a first go at this one, and I'll I'll see because uh, yeah, I haven't thought of myself as doing a legal ethnography, but I'll um, I think I could still have something to say in response. But maybe Tiblina, would you like to go first? Um, yeah, thanks. So I could, but you know, I lost the audio in some parts. So Siddharth, I don't know if I've got your question, but I'll just kind of respond to what uh, Amanda said. It's about legal ethnography. So I wasn't doing legal ethnography and I wasn't even doing ethnography at all. And for a reason, you know, because as I said, the conceptual issues and the practical bits in my research were interrelated, right? And the argument, in fact, was kind of had to come out of that interrelationship without which it didn't make sense. So if I was going to do ethnography, A, I wasn't, uh, I, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not really trained in ethnography, okay? So if I was going to do it, but still it's it's a method in in the academia, right? It It's something that an, the acad, academics have a privilege over non-academics, right? Because it's specifically an academic method. Now, if you go and use that, it's something that the academics in my research, so that's me because I was doing a PhD, then because I was also interviewing Upendra Bakshi and Ratna Kapoor, remember? So there's that other piece of my research. We would be familiar with it, but the non-academic participants in my research wouldn't know what it was all about. So then I had to also think of, okay, this is a method that doesn't work for me, which is why, in fact, I had to think of a method that's something that all of us could relate to, at least a word that all of us could relate to. So that's why I land up with Adda, right? And I think, okay, a conversation is something we all do. Uh, Adda is what we all know how to do. Right. So in that sense, it's not it didn't have a belonging to the academia in the way that um, would, in fact, privilege some, one group over the other. So that's where uh, that's where Adda comes into the picture. And which is why I, in fact, want to do uh, uh, I wanted to kind of use this as my method. Right. So so in some ways, I what I really was doing was I was engaging in a conversation. 
okay uh, a conversation in which i was there not to just ask people questions and learn about the way in which they wrote stuff that had to do with law but i was also sharing what i thought okay and i said okay but i don't agree but how do you, it doesn't make sense to me or it wouldn't make sense here how what, how do you kind of explain that to me why are you saying that so in that sense it really was a conversation that was just different maybe from standard field work in the sense where i am kind of the my interviewees are the informants and i am there to collect data or information and then analyze interpret it and then produce knowledge okay so i was kind of also working with those uh, those uh, conventions in the way in which research is carried out um yeah so it for me it was really a very very practical very practical concerns really uh, but i also kind of was trying to play with it a bit because i had a problem with the way in which you know institutionalized formal academic research is carried out and the kind of uh, hierarchy that there is very insidious um you know unspoken but there are these things uh, and that those are the things that i wanted to kind of actually talk about That's rather great. than yeah mm. so so amanda and then after amanda i'm going to go to ra who has a a prompt she'd like to put into the conversation mm. Um thanks for your questions today. I've never actually thought of my current project as a legal um you know legal field or legal ethnography. Um but as you point out it does you know it's dealing with the with the right to education act. And so I guess my response to that would be to think more about what field work brings to um thinking about that act as opposed to what the legal aspect changes as a first point. So I guess for me you know this is about the social life of that um act and looking at all of the different actors involved and trying to understand these networks of power through which this act is implemented and in many instances um not really implemented um so something that i've really enjoyed about um ethnography um in combination with a lot of interviews so not you know not just participant observation but also interviews is that the particularly the current project involves field work in schools um with bureaucrats and ngos in lucknow who are involved in implementing the act and then with um policy makers and 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 think tank workers and so on in delhi as well so different kind of different actors and trying to understand the different um relations between them and so i think it really enables me to go from a kind of micro level school level understanding of how this piece of legislation works right through to sort of understanding at a different level how it came into being in the first place and what the kind of objectives and goals were um what does it mean to be thinking though about this pr- current project which is about a law relative to my previous two projects which um were not explicitly about a law um i guess the short answer is i don't really know um but one way of answering that question would be um i think one of the ethical dilemmas that i had based on the two previous projects was around um kind of the criticality of of academia and i felt like i was approaching fieldwork looking for problems um and i wanted to do a project where i was looking for um uh you know looking at instances where people had um tried to you know were really committed to the, to implementing this legislation well in contexts where it often wasn't being implemented well and so um uh 
yeah, for me, looking at this law and combining it with the kind of um, more kind of conceptual and ethical approach to focusing perhaps more on the positive um, was a key driver behind this project. Fantastic. There's um, I can see that one could devote, in fact, many, many hours to conversations about field work because so many particular questions are raised um, that can't easily be generalized. I think um, so far I'm so far I'm learning about the interconnectedness of the ethical, the conceptual and the practical and the way that the project has to drive those things and the way that they then reshape the project, particularly in your case, Evelina, I'm really hearing about the way that reflection on the question of fieldwork forced you to reconceptualise the whole project. Um, so I guess we'll have to have more sessions on fieldwork as well. I want to turn, though, to Ra, who's been waiting patiently to ask a question. Or pose, no, or offer a Thank you for uh, raising this as a topic for the Skills Circle and thank you, Devalina and Amanda, for your really interesting insights about your research. Um, I, I too have um, been involved in field work in schools uh, using ethnographic methods and uh, one of the things that I found really difficult was the so-called exiting um, field work operations. And so I was wondering if if you could comment about that in terms of your experiences um, in terms of uh, finishing up ethnography, if there is such a thing. Um, in some ways, I think the two projects I've done in schools haven't finished up and maybe that has sort of set, you know, meant that some of those uh, so the first project was in Hyderabad. As I said, I, I was there for a whole year living with families. And because I was there for so long, I felt like, you know, there was a lot of time to prepare to leave. And I felt like I left the first time. Um, I also left and came back. So I left for a month um, and had a break from fieldwork and went back. And I felt like that was quite a significant thing to leave and then come back. And then there was a long period of, of, of preparing to leave after the first fieldwork. But I've since gone back you know, on numerous occasions and um, conducted follow-up interviews with some of the young people then. And so I feel like the maintenance of those relationships has been important to the sense of um, not necessarily leaving the field in a really sharp way. Um, and also, interestingly, the field has moved in the sense that some people who I was particularly close to while I was doing that fieldwork now live in Melbourne as a result of, you know, uh, international student mobility and marriage and so on. So I guess that's another interesting aspect of fieldwork coming to an end. In the Lucknow project that came to an abrupt end because of um, COVID, um, but for the past 18 months there's been this idea that I would return and finish the project at some point. And so the project currently exists in this sort of somewhat limbo phase of feeling like fieldwork isn't actually going to continue, but still sort of main, maintaining connections with people as if I'm coming back at some point to finish the project. So, yeah, I guess a bit of an unusual end there. I guess um, that uh, raises the the elephant in the room for anyone doing a PhD at the moment, uh, which is lockdown and fieldwork. Um, ben, you've unmuted. Were you, were you thinking of the same question and whether fieldwork is futile as a imaginary for the next 18 months or something? 
just as an easy question to pose to both of them in the last eight minutes, <laughs> how, how do you do fieldwork uh, yeah. under conditions of lockdown? No, I was, I was, um, I did have a question, but but mine was perhaps an even more nitty gritty practical one than that. Do either Amanda or Debelina want to? Do you have any kind of immediate reflections to the question of fieldwork under lockdown conditions for those in the circle who are currently? doing PhD dissertation projects that involve field work? No well, you, could also, you could also pose your nitty-gritty question and then Debelina and Amanda could choose. Can choose. That's <laughs> fair enough. That's a fair enough way. To, that's, a, that's a fair way to pose it. So thank you both um, for such rich reflections. Uh, I really learned a lot listening to you. Um, you know, a number of things. I mean, I'm struck listening to Debelina about the ways in which we use metaphors to try and grasp at the work that we're doing when we're doing this kind of work and the ways in which the, you know, the metaphor and the practice of Ada completely kind of undoes at least an extractive way of thinking about fieldwork. I think often, you know, we tend to think of fieldwork as, as according to a kind of extractive model where you kind of go over there, you go out there and you extract data or information and then you come back and, and, you, and you do whatever you do to it. Um, whereas the notion of a meeting place obviously undoes that. But, I, you know, I think my, my question is, is a more banal and a practical one. And it was, again, kind of enlivened by listening to Debelina talk about the kind of politics of knowledge production. Um, and I kind of think that there is a risk for those of us listening to such a really rich and beautiful description of the kind of interconnection and the layering of the conceptual and the political and the ethical um, and thinking that it's, you know, it's easy to play with these things and it's easy to kind of upend academic conventions. Um, but I was also struck listening to you about just how, you know, cussedly difficult it must have been for you to kind of shift the ethics committees and, you know, um, I would say your supervisors, but I know you, you probably wouldn't have had to shift Anne and Sean on this, but, you know, dealing with university rules and, and um, gatekeepers and the polices of, of discipline. And I just wondered if, you, you know, if you had any reflections, either of you, for people in the circle who are doing this kind of work and who might aspire to kind of some of the political and ethical commitments that, that you've been talking about that require you know, a lot of work to push back on these kind of rules and regulations. If you've got any tips for, um, you know, ethics committee whispering and working around, you know, working around people, um, uh, you know, embodied practical subversion. Anyway, they're my two questions. You can choose between doing field work when there is no field um, or subverting university bureaucrats. Your choice. Amanda, do you want to go first to okay. have the, the first last word? Um, I'm going to do the the other the COVID question. Um, so I tried to do some field work um, by um, um, for complicated reasons, um, uh, training up some young people who live in Lucknow to do phone interviews. You know, um, with um, uh, families who were um, trying to learn what you know while uh, schools were closed and um, the young people did a fantastic job but I still kind of felt like um, you know people it wasn't a great time for people to have phone calls etc and it has made me reflect on you know maybe some of the risks of trying to use the same methods I know phone interviews not exactly the same as doing an interview in person in someone's home but use the same methods in a COVID context and I've 
found myself that, you know, messaging via WhatsApp, which is my normal way of communicating with, you know, people in the field, my, you know, like, why can we not, you know, adapt the method, you know, even more substantially um, to suit the context of COVID, of digital communication, et cetera, rather than trying to recreate the interview um, online. Um, possibly less of an issue for people who have access to kind of video conferencing facilities, but certainly just calling someone um, worked. But yeah, I don't know. So that's my small COVID tip. Evelina, do you want the last word? Okay, so quickly on COVID, I've actually done a few interviews uh, during this time. And I mean, one has to have access to technology, right? You have to have that. And without that, this couldn't have happened. So, and I've not done WhatsApp interviews. I've done it on uh, Zoom. Um, it hasn't been great because I think that in-person conversation, it cannot kind of substitute for that. So, and because time and place are such important factors in the way that I will conceptualize and kind of uh, design my research, I wouldn't do it if, uh, you, you know, I wouldn't do field work if it doesn't really uh, give me that joy and uh, the, the sense of an actual conversation that it, I'm looking for. So that that's that. So those haven't been great, the interviews that I've done. I've got the information, but it was, hasn't been like an experience that I generally want to look for. Um, the other uh, point about, uh, what was the other question then? Sorry. Which is what about, I had about pushing to tell the university about. administration. Oh, right. To. Yes, yes, yes. No, so uh, you're right. Sean and Anne were, you know, great. I mean, they didn't ask me to change a thing. So, and I was so frustrated at times. And I was actually this very annoying PhD student who would send these frustrating emails to Sean and Anne saying, I'm, I want to kill everybody who sits on that committee. And I remember one Sean wrote back to me saying, Calm down, exclamation point and have a go at it again. And that's what he would write, have a go. And that's what it was for me. And I guess they also made me think of it as uh, my first set of audience to whom I would have to explain what I was doing because it wasn't easy. It required a lot of explanation and as to why I was interested in the things that would look like non-issues, right? I should only be worrying about consent forms, confidentiality, how am I going to find approval? But those were not my concerns at all. And to kind of get the committee to see what my concerns were, I guess was kind of, I saw that as the first step towards actually reaching out to a wider academic audience. So they're not so much gatekeepers as much as um, frustrating, yes, but also something that helped pushed me to kind of translate my concerns in that could be comprehensible to an academic audience. And, and so, and, and so, yeah, so it wasn't something that I was doing alone. And I know students uh, who have had to change uh, their research agendas, in fact, because of this, uh, this difficulty with the ethics committee. So I, I had a friend who was working with street kids in, in Southeast Asia and uh, her supervisors had told her that, you know, she did, couldn't do that. She couldn't do field work. She just uh, had to take it out, which wasn't the case for me. And so they were like cheering me. Yeah, have a go at it again. Come on, go. So I, I kept on writing emails and emails after emails, revising my application. But yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it's something that I had to do if, I, if my research had to make sense to people. So that's, that's, that's yeah. That's great. I mean, I think that idea of um, 
treating the ethics committee as your first audience was such good advice. I can hear Sean McVeigh's voice and Anne Genovese's voice in that mm. notion. Um, you know, don't treat it as a stupid hurdle. Treat it as yeah. an opportunity to explain to a community that is going to have to engage with it. Although in defence of the supervisor who urges, <laughs> student, who urges candidates away from field work, I have to say that sometimes the reason why supervisors say that is not because they hate the project or don't uh, support you, but because we have some uh, relationship to practicality that yeah. maybe the students wish we, you know, the idea that perhaps this is not feasible in this time frame for this moment um, that's just to defend the supervisor who discourages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Sandhya. And also because it takes so much time. And that's another reason why. Exactly. So for my friend who I was talking about, her supervisor advised her not to because of that reason, because it was just the back and forth was too long. I know, I know. Let us just squeeze one more question okay. from Joan in. Uh, Joan. Yes, my experience was from doing oral histories and setting up the lesbian history archives. And with, so I'm talking about the end of it. It was really important when we did this to make sure that whatever we did went back to the community at the end, that it wasn't as if we came and took lives and took them away and used them and they never saw us again. So I'm just, isn't a question, but really, to really... The question is, how does this work live beyond the static setting of the paper, the PhD, but if you're given something to give it back in return? And in the old days, we did slides. So we do slideshows. We do. And we return the words to the community that gave them. So I just want to put that in because we've talked about all the processes, the before and the during. But there's something that goes on afterwards that perhaps is the most important honoring of uh, knowledge, communal creation. That's fantastic. And thank you, Jane, uh, for the comment and for being here. Um, <laughs> but I think I think given the uh, orientation of many researchers at ILA, it sounds like we'll have to have another, another session on after field work precisely as a way of thinking through that question about the, what what happens to the quote-unquote knowledge um, that is generated. So I'm going to um, draw uh, proceedings to a close because we have only an hour set aside, but I'd like to say thank you very much to all of you for coming and participating in the Skills Circle. I'm sorry that we don't get to meet and have lunch because that's such a joyful part of the Skills Circle normally, but I am glad that by being on Zoom, we have been able to have people who are not in Melbourne, including Debelina and Ben. Um, Amanda, I'm assuming you're in Melbourne, although I don't actually know. But um, thank you very much to Amanda and Debelina especially for sharing your experiences and thinking through the whole process. If we were in a room, people would clap at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and um thank you also ben for joining us and being part of joining us in the skill circle network in an ongoing way it's such a pleasure it makes the zoomification all worthwhile 
So thank you very much. And thank you to Annabelle for Annabelle Duncan for supporting the whole event and uh, recording it and being present. So thank you all and uh, goodbye. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.